wonderful to be with you all. Um, we we began our relationship with Northgate in 1977 when I was at Pitt and uh, getting a master's, and we're here for was here for two years as director of music. And then you have been with us in our journey, 18 years in Italy, from 2000, from uh, 1988 to 2006, and then from 2006 to the present uh, as director of church engagement for Crossworld. And we'll we'll talk very briefly about that at the end. Um, but it's, it's always a pleasure to be with you for, for a number of different reasons. For the people we know here, you have no idea how much of pleasure it is for me to uh, play with Lenny and the band, and just, I just, that's just a treat uh, uh, for me to do that. So thanks for that opportunity. Uh, this morning we want to talk about a vision for our everyday vocations for good reason. It's what we do every day. You would think that would be kind of important. And it's through our everyday that God wants to accomplish his work. And very simply, our focus is this. On, oh, wait, wait, wait. Now that's on. Very simply, our focus is this. What vision do we have for who we are and what we do every day? And how do our everyday occupations connect with God's purposes in the world? It's sort of like the questions of life. Who am I and why am I here? And I don't know how often you ask yourselves those questions, but if I were to ask you that question, I know most of us would have a good Bible answer. We are children of God, loved by him, created to glorify God, to follow Jesus, to love God and our neighbor. And they're all wonderfully true and very general that every Christian, we hopefully, would answer. And in that generality, I believe we miss the radical nature of who we are and what God has called us to in redeeming us. And we are nothing less than partners with God in his work of restoring all things through our vocations, whatever they may be in our everyday. Now, in my experience, myself included, I believe most people in our churches have not envisioned themselves as a partner with God in his work of restoring all things through what we do every day, getting up Monday morning saying, God, what is our work today that we're doing here together? What's broken that you are restoring? But what if we did? What if God's people along the breadth and length of the land who have experienced his shalom through Christ would bring that influence where we live and work, intentionally seeking what God is doing, seeking his kingdom, radically loving people in whatever space we enter? What if we envisioned ourselves as partners with God? What if we were to wake up Monday morning with the prayer like this, God... I'm going to my ministry where you've called me to work with creativity, excellence, and integrity to display you to others for their well-being, for their good, to make disciples. I'm going to work. Show me what that looks like and in whom you want me to invest. I do not believe this has been the normal posture for believers 
for the simple reason that there is a centuries-old sacred-secular divide that has marginalized most church people into thinking that ministry is something you do in church, led by professional ministers who serve the Lord full-time. You know, we normally refer to people like the pastor and missionaries as being in full-time ministry. Where does that leave the rest of us? who involve others, like most of the congregation, in volunteer ministries who serve the Lord, so to speak, in those two to four hours a week that they may give to the church. And the remainder of the time is, well, that's your work or job or whatever you may think of it. Consequently, most often, we do not think of our everyday work as our ministry, let alone our primary ministry to which God has intentionally called us. So see if you can identify with this definition kind of of the sacred-secular divide. It's the common belief that some parts of life Typically, religious activities such as prayer, worship services, and church work are sacred and somehow more important in God's eyes. And everything else that makes up ordinary life, your school, your work, your family duties, like changing diapers or cleaning the house or doing the dishes or picking up the kids from sports or sports or music or the arts, politics, hobbies, all those things are kind of secular and of less interest to God. And the insidiousness of this is that we know that's not true. And in the famous words of Abraham Kuyper, was a famous theologian of the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, and he was also a great politician. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, if you followed the series, The Crown, has anybody here followed that series at least a little bit? Kind of interesting. Or if even if not, if you understand the least bit about being part of a royal family, and we've seen that in, lately, you understand that a major theme throughout is the reality that members of the royal family do not really have a life of their own. So in the last episode of The Crown, There's the scene in which Princess Di is in her room and she's kind of complaining and wants to kind of leave the royal family because of the way things have gone on with Prince Charles, you know. And I think we've seen kind of glimpses of that nowadays in another royal marriage. You're an Italian. You like to speak with your hands. This is, this, is, this is good. I got a microphone in one hand, the clicker in the other, and I have to figure out how to turn the pages. <laughs> so we have this scene in which, it's the last episode, we have this scene in which Prince Philip goes to a discontented and angry Princess Diana and says this. Everyone in this system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider, apart from the one person, the only person that matters. She's the oxygen we all breathe, 
the essence of all our duty. Your problem, if I may say, is you seem to be confused about who that person is. Now, aside from the fact that we are not irrelevant, anything but that, we are lost, lonely outsiders, apart from the one person, the only person that matters. He's the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty and love. Our problem sometimes is we seem to be confused about who that person is. And that's our starting point. We exist for the crown. We exist for the crown. And for the believer, there is no sacred secular divide. All of life, all of our activity, all of our work and voca our vocations is sacred. And the rest of our time, is for, we want to look at God's perspective on our everyday activity, our work and vocations. And we start with the simple definition of work. Hello? <laughs> our work, according to the dictionary, is activity involving mental or physical effort done in order to achieve a result. It's real simple. And we're using the broad we're using the broad definition of work. We normally think of work as what we go to Monday morning. Yes, it, we think of work as our employment, but work is far more from that. Work is delightful grandparenting. That's part of our work and vocations at this time. Parenting is work. It's not always delightful, but it's work. Being a husband and wife is work. Being a student is work. If you're retired or contemplating that, it does, you're still going to be involved in work of some, some sort. In other words, it involves all of life. And it's why we use in this conversation, we talk about whole life discipleship. Because it's following Jesus in all of life. And what is the purpose of our work in all of that? Well, that very familiar verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 talks about that, where it talks about whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do whatever you do, that encompasses everything, do all to the glory of God. A well-known phrase that I think we have to give a little meat to, and that's what we're going to be trying to do the rest of our time. What does that mean, to do all to the glory of God? I believe it means that our work is to be a reflection of God that puts him on display and is the means of his work in the world. God is at work in the world. We all admit that. He is at work in the world to, to do what? To bring, we'll, go, we'll get to that in a moment, but basically he's at work in the world to bring life and flourishing to the humanity that he created. And guess what? We all here, in our daily work, in our daily vocations, we're the means. No plan B. We're the means. Another definition for vocation. Vocation is often a synonym for work. We use it, we use it for our work. If I ask you what's your vocation, you say, well, I'm a teacher or I'm a plumber or I'm a, I'm a carpenter or I'm an engineer or I'm a, I, I'm a store clerk, whatever. Uh, we, we often use it that way. But literally, the word vocation 
means calling. Work emphasizes our activity that we do, whatever that may be. But very importantly, vocation emphasizes that someone called us to it. Oz Guinness very famously said, there is no calling unless there is a caller. And if you know Jesus, you're here this morning, you know Jesus, you know he called you to himself. When you were dead, he brought you out of the tomb and made you alive. Out of the mass of humanity, he called you to himself. And he called you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's mostly how the scripture uses the word calling of believers. That's the primary calling. But there's a secondary calling in four different areas. In your family, job, and church, and society. We have secondary callings in, in all these different areas. And no one part is more sacred than another. That's very important. My callings with my grandchildren and my children and my wife are just as important as my callings in my job. They're all different callings that God has given us that he has called us to. But the purpose in it is the same, to love God, to love others, and to seek his kingdom in that calling. And it makes a big difference if we look at those areas of our lives, in our families, in the church, in our jobs, in our occupations, in society. It makes a big difference if we're just there and we happen to be there, or we understand there is a caller who has called us to that for the sake of his kingdom. It makes all the difference in the world. Where does this all start? It all starts, believe it or not, on the first page of the Bible. And we can get everything we need from the first, well, not really. But the, I, don't, I don't know how many people go to the first page of the Bible to understand who they are and why they are here. But we have that right here. In Genesis 1, after, in Genesis 1, after God created order and beauty out of chaos and emptiness and created all the beauty of the universe, but, but there wasn't anything or anyone like him, he created humanity. And we read this in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Unlike everything else he made, we have been made a little lower than God. The crown of his creation. We are made a little like God. And what was intention, his intention in all of that? His intention was that we would have relationship with him and one another and others made in his image and reflect who he is in the whole world so that the whole world would display the glory of God. And we have Bible verses like that. That the glory of the Lord fill the earth. That was God's intention in the original Great Commission to create a humanity that would multiply and fill the earth with his glory. Kind of reminds us of the words of Jesus. 
fill the earth, go into all the world. Now, what is it that we reflect of God? That's a big subject, too, that you could spend a whole lot of time on. But I want to sum it up in three things. We reflect God in his love, in his justice, and his works. We reflect him in his love. God is an eternal community of three persons in perfect love, one God, the model for God's people, the model for humanity. And that's why it's the overriding request of Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says that they may be one as we are one, that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. It is no accident that all humanity longs to belong to one another. It's our, our deepest joys and memories are associated with relationships of some sort, just as our deepest hurts and wounds come from the failures of those relationships. Because everyone, knowing God or not, desires to give and receive love. And that's because we are relational to the core, whether we think that we are or not. We're relational beings, relational to core, made a little like God. And that's why Jesus said that radical love, love in the way that he loved us, is the greatest apologetic for who Jesus is and for who we are. When we, in some fashion, love other people the way God loved us unconditionally, when we're mistreated, And don't seek to be polarized on one side or the other. This, this applies at all levels. People see a glimpse of the love of God. And Jesus said that, they would, that all the world would know that the Father sent the Son. By all this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We all, and, that's, and that love has been poured in us by the Spirit. We also reflect his justice. God is the standard for all that is right and good. It encompasses rescue, whether that's trafficking and something horrific like that, or whether that's as simple as bullying that you see going on in your school or workplace or through your iPhone or whatever it may be, or an abusive relationship. God's a God of rescue, and he's a God of equity. Does everyone you know, is everyone you know treated fairly and equally? We know that's not the case, and we know that hasn't been the case. But that's what God desires. And ultimately, restoration. The reversal of injustice and sin. And all humanity, whether knowing God or not, recoils at injustice, whatever they conceive it to be, desiring a just world, however they understand that. Why? Because whether they recognize it or not, and we do recognize it, we're in the image of God, who is a God of justice. And that's the reason why reflecting God's justice is equally important as reflecting his sacrificial love. And Micah 6.8 famously brings that together, where it says, what does the Lord require of you? Do justice. That means right where we are every day. Do justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with our God. And lastly, we reflect his works. Through our various vocations and skills and wirings, God's made us all differently. And he accomplishes his work of helping people live and flourish 
through our work, our vocations. No plan B. So, for instance, very relevant question, how'd you get your breakfast this morning? Well, you probably went to the store and there was the clerk at the store and there was the stock person at the store who had the, who put the ingredients up on the shelf and there was a truck driver who drove, drove the ingredients to the store and there was the farmer who grew the ingredients and the people in the field who worked it and there was the banker who gave the funds and the loans for the farmer and for the stores and in other words the whole economic system of vocations of believers and unbelievers alike was the answer to the Lord's prayer give us this day our daily bread and that shows you how the, lay, the playing field is kind of leveled with all of us we all need one another and we can't function without one another. There's kingdom language here as well. On the first page of the Bible, we're told to subdue and rule over all. Now, what does that make us if we're told to rule? And if you say, think kings and queens, then you're correct. We are royalty. Because God created us to be his what I call vice regents, those who rule on behalf, behalf of the king of creation. The late Eugene Peterson, who was the translator of the message, used the term king work to describe any honest and moral work that highlights the essential dignity as being our work, whatever it may be, as being related to God's work. Listen to this description. Work derives from and represents the sovereign God who expresses his sovereignty as a worker. King work. That's what you and I do. Sovereigns work to bring order out of chaos. Guard and fight for the sanctity of things and people. Deliver victims from injustice and misfortune and wretchedness. Grant pardon to the condemned and damned. Heal sickness by their very presence, bring dignity and honor to people and land. God's sovereignty is not abstract. It is a working sovereignty and is expressed in work. Now listen, all of our work is intended as an extension of and participation in that sovereignty. Gives new meaning to this idea that we sometimes hear that we are the hands and feet and ears and eyes, and nose, and mouth of Jesus. Our work, our vocations, are an extension of God. And in fact, Martin Luther used the term mask of God uh, to describe our vocations because God accomplishes his work, as it were, be, where he's unseen, he's, there's a mask, and, and our vocations, we and our vocations, we're the mask. And God accomplishes that through us, whatever he wants to accomplish. He does it through us. If there's anything that you get when you leave this place, get the fact that God is at work in the world and you're the means. And these verses have rightly been called the cultural mandate. For good reason, because wherever we go, we create and influence culture, whether we are aware of it or not. And why is that? Because culture happens 
through the ongoing words, actions, and attitudes of people in a group setting. So your family has a culture. Your ethnicity has a culture. We all know I'm I'm 100% Italian-American. I grew up in a house with three generations of Italians living under the same roof. Need I say more? That, and that's different from Southern, and we're Southern Italians, and that's different from Northern Italians. And you, and each of your families has a culture, and this church has a culture, and your workplace has a culture. Carmen Gallo, who's an author and consultant for the likes of Bill Gates, said, whether we plan it or not, culture will happen. Why not create the culture we want? And in, in essence, that's what God said to us in Genesis chapter 1. Why not create the culture that reflects me? So, we all know the success of Starbucks. What was it that Howard, Howard Schultz wanted to create after his trip to Italy when he drank coffee day in and day out at the bars in Italy. He wanted his chain of coffee to be just like in Italy, a third place where between home and work where they not only celebrated coffee, but connection. And that's what happens in the bars in Italy, isn't it, Dimitri? You connect with people there. Moms connect with one another. Colleagues connect with one another. They go to the bar together. They have a coffee. They have a... They have a uh, cappuccino and brioche, nothing like it in the world. Okay? That's what they do. That's what they do. And wherever we are leaders, in our families, you as leaders in your families, in your jobs, at a church, wherever we are leaders, we are architects of culture. And so that begs the question, how aware are we of what we are creating? And the second question is, what is it we're creating? Because we, as architects of culture, we can do that. When God gave this mandate now to steward creation on his behalf, and what characterized, in Genesis 1 and 2, what characterized the culture of work and relationships in the environment of Genesis 1? Well, here's that word shalom that we know as the word peace in Hebrew, but it's so much more than that. It literally means well-being flourishing in every sense with God, one another, and the culture they created. It's what we were created for. It's the way things should be. We were not created for the mess of this world. So as God's vice regents, humanity was the means of God's work to develop a world of shalom where humanity would flourish and glorify him. And our vocations, what you do every day, are our kingdom assignments where we love God and others, reflecting him and seeking his kingdom in that place. So picture this scene. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor 
a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. That's where you are. And the first place we see that in the scriptures is Genesis chapter 2 in the garden. Humanity's workplace on mission. Where God places the man in the garden, tells him to work it, to cultivate it, and keep it. Work starts in the garden that God worked to create. And contrary to some popular opinion, work did not start with sin or the fall. On the contrary, it's a reflection of a working God built into everyone's DNA. And in fact, the Hebrew word, when God told Adam to work the garden, is also the same word in Hebrew, get this, for worship. And there's no English word that brings the two concepts, work and worship, together. But that's why you will hear people talk about our work is worship. It is offered up to God by Him, through Him, and for Him. We imitate God in our work, whether that's blue-collar work, white-collar work, whatever it is, it speaks of the dignity in and of itself of work. Without work being a platform, so to speak, to tell someone else about Jesus as important as it is to tell someone about Jesus. Our work in and of itself has the dignity as being in an imitation of God. Martin Luther King very famously said, of necessity he said this, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all hosts of heaven and earth pause to say, here lives a great sweeper who did his job well. And I would add, and reflected God's well by bringing order and beauty, which are marks of flourishing. And he had to say that. Why did he have to say that? Because many of the African-American race could not rise above the job of a street sweeper for years and other things like that because of the color of their skin. And he wanted to teach them the great biblical doctrine of the dignity of their work no matter what they did. And this is also very important for us and the world because most of the world cannot ask the question that we like to ask, what would you like to do when you grow up? Most of the world can't ask that question. It is a privilege of wealthier, educated people who can choose to go to school to do what they want to do, to be what they want to be when they grow up. Most of the world cannot do that. Does that mean their work does not have meaning or that when we have to do something that we don't want to do or a relationship or something that we're in that we don't want to be in, does that mean it doesn't have meaning? No. No. Because inherently our work is a reflection of God and the means of his work through how we work and the way we love people. Seeking his kingdom in that. And that's all the meaning that you need. What does all this say about our garden where we live and work? Our vocations are our sacred venues to love God and others. 
It is our place where we create, shape, and influence culture to reflect his love, justice, and beauty, bringing flourishing to our world. And it's our venue for making disciples, investing in people. Now, we know that sin messed all that up, and that's true. But just for a moment, just for a moment, imagine if Genesis 3 did not happen and Genesis 1 was fulfilled. What would we have? Well, here we go again. We would have shalom throughout the whole world, a whole world in which God's glory would be reflected and humanity would flourish. And what's important about this is that God has not canceled, rescinded his Genesis 1 mandate. That's our vision. That's why we are here. That's why we are here in our everyday. We are his vice regents, his partners, his ambassadors, his agents until he comes to be the means of his work in the, wor in the world. No plan B. But Genesis 3 does happen. And Shalom has been vandalized. And culture reflects our corruption and the painful consequences of the fall as depicted in this Italian painting. Work can be hard, disappointing, characterized by selfishness and conflict. We are still in his image, but we are macchiato. Now we all know what macchiato means. It means stained. The image of God is in us, but it's stained. When you order a latte macchiato somehow, or caramel macchiato, I don't know what that is. A latte macchiato, that is a glass of steamed milk that has been stained with coffee, with caramel, with whatever they put in it. Americans seem to find a way to do things that it's they, they just take it and do awful things with it. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, we are still in the image of God, but we're macchiato, we're stained. And the entrance of sin means our world is broken, people are exploited, and God, life does not work as God intended. And exponentially so, where the gospel has had little or no influence, such as in lands where trafficking is kind of a norm, where kidnapping is kind of a norm. But God has not canceled his Genesis 1 mandate, so much so that he sent Jesus to reverse the fall and restore all things broken to bless the world. And so no sooner did Genesis 3 happen, and what does God do? He promises a redeemer, a deliverer, a conqueror who will crush the head of the evil one. And don't we all wish it would happen soon? And he, and he, pro and he makes promise after promise about the seed the seed of the woman that becomes the seed of Abraham, that becomes Jesus the seed, who will bring blessing to the nations. And lo and behold, we all here as believers in Jesus, we are the spiritual seed of Abraham. What is our responsibility, our job? To bring blessing to the world. And so Colossians 1 sums up what that blessing of the world is, where it says, by the blood of Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled through the blood of the cross, where he will make shalom, he will make peace by the blood of the cross. And then it says, it begins with us, and you has he reconciled who were dead in your trespasses and sins.
Jesus' coming cross and resurrection are not just about getting people to heaven, as important as that is. And, the th- and I, why do I say this? Because, my friends, the theology that many of us learned is heaven-centered. That's what the gospel, that's what salvation is about, getting people to heaven. Well, that's only part of the story. And if we stop there, we have missed the reason that we have been created and left here on the earth. The theology of the scriptures is that heaven is heaven and earth centered in which Jesus' kingdom has already broken in through the gospel. And we all are his partners, his vice regents, beginning that reversal and restoration, beginning his kingdom work. And in fact, the scripture says we are a royal priesthood. We are, Revelation 1, we are a kingdom of priests. And Jesus' work was sufficient, Colossians says, to reconcile all things by the blood of the cross, providing for the restoration of the universe. But it begins now. And that affects the way that you get up Monday morning and look at what God has called you to do. It changes everything. When we offer that to him, when we recognize that Jesus is our boss and that he's called us to that. Doesn't mean that calling can't change. Doesn't mean that. But it means for that if you're there now, that's where he's called you. We are restored image bearers, mandated to fill the earth and rule over all under Jesus. And in his kingdom, the great reversal begins. Now that's going to make you a little hungry, but Jesus reverses guilt with forgiveness, shame with honor, broken relationships with reconciliation, injustice with justice, oppression with deliverance, poverty with economic well-being, sickness with healing. But it only begins there. It only begins there. We are not bringing in utopia. We will never do that. We look to the coming of Jesus to do that. There is much brokenness going on. But... But, this is the second Italian world you'll look at, we are an antipasto. And that does not mean before the pasta. (laughs) Pasto, with an O on the end. It's built into Romance languages, masculine and feminine, incidentally. Antipasto. We are before the banquet, before the main meal. We give, this is who you are. We give people an appetizer of the coming kingdom through our everyday work and relationships. The kingdom has already come, but it is not yet. And we give people an antipasto of the kingdom. And in the meantime, Jesus saves us not only from sin and setting us on a journey to heaven. He saves us to the original Genesis 1 purpose for which we were created. The cultural mandate, restoring our identity as vice regents of the king of creation. Partners with God in his work of reconciling all things, which ultimately affects our cultures. As God's people live out the gospel, they're changed, the people they bless are, and culture cannot help but be affected. And that's at small levels, whether it's the level of your family that you're seeking to lead. Your life has been changed by Christ. Your culture has been changed by Christ. Or at a global level, 
such as happened in the movie, such as happened with William Wilberforce, I doubt very much, you know, most of us here may not be able to influence things at a national or global level, but you never know. William Wilberforce, as a politician in England in the 18th century, did not expect to have his name engraved in human history as the one main person who was responsible for the abolition of slavery in the whole of the British Empire. And he was debating whether or not he should do something more spiritual, like preach, or go into politics. And someone in the movie, Amazing Grace, famously said, we understand you are having problems whether to do the work of God or that of a political activist. We humbly suggest that you can do both. And he did both. And through his vocation, through his vision, faith in Christ and perseverance, his oratorical skills that God gave him, he finally saw the abolition of slavery in the British Empire some 50 years after he began and then died three days later. The most, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament comes from Jeremiah about this whole conversation. When Israel went, when Israel went into exile, obedience for them, with God's judgment upon them for their continued disobedience over centuries, obedience meant surrender to the Babylonians who were God's instruments of his discipline, go to Babylon, build houses, plant vineyards, raise families, in other words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the place. And last but not least, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, don't miss the scandal. They were to seek the holistic well-being of their captors who invaded their land, ravished and massacred their families and friends, and then brought them into captivity. They leave the safety, comfort of their community in Israel, sent into the world, so to speak, to seek the shalom of the unbelieving community surrounding them. And it's as if the Taliban somehow managed to come to the United States, and there's probably conspiracy theories about that as well, it's as if the Taliban were to come to the United States, overrun us, and then God says to us, his people, now go, now go love on them. Go love on them. So also, God sends us into the neighborhoods and workplaces of the world to seek his kingdom. Their shalom in the cultures where we live and work. And there's profound implications of this for missions. God's global disciple-making work was never meant to be the domain of a few of professional religious workers, what you and I understand as missionaries like, my, like ourselves. All humanity in relation to the earth. And that's what my work is all about with churches. We want to help churches recognize, affirm, and cast vision and equip all their people in our everyday vocations to be partners with God here, but yet also to be thinking about it, because this is a paradigm change, to be thinking about how might God want to use my vocation in the world where missionaries can't even go? 
How might God want to use my vocation of being a tradesman, of being a healthcare worker, an engineer, a project manager, to some of the unreached peoples of the world? And my work with churches as I connect with them, which is what I do full time, is to help cast that vision and to break down this sacred secular uh, lie that some things are more spiritual and sacred than others when it comes to our vocations. So I leave you a few questions that we're going to continue the conversation about in a little bit. What is good? These are questions that we ask about the, our vocations and the cultures that we're making. One, what is good that we can promote, celebrate, and protect? Look at your family, your business, and your workplace. Where is God working? Two, what is missing that we can contribute? What, three, what is evil that we can resist or stop? This is, this is, this gets hairy. When you see evil going on where you are and you want to stop it, that's going to take courage. It'll take courage to stop someone who is bullying another person. If that bullying even happens at a corporate level or at a schoolyard level, it takes courage to stop that. And there's con- can be consequences. What is broken that we can restore? Being a musician, I appreciate the perspective of Bono. Um, he, he wrote, I'm a musician. I write songs. I just hope when the day is done, I've been able to tear a little corner off of the darkness. What would it look like in our vocation to think about? What would it look like for me to tear a little corner off of the darkness of where I live and work? And five, who might you be able to bless at your work and invest in with the love of Jesus? I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come. And we're going to sing a song. And the song comes directly from Luke chapter 4 of Jesus' mission statement of why he came. You'll recognize the words. But that mission statement is just as well our statement who continue the work of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on me now, poured out like oil over me, for the Lord has called and anointed me. captive soul 
Spirit of the Lord. 